Welcome everyone to episode 8 of the Curse Land Podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I'm your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. swimmer in the Miami River outside of Dayton, Ohio, discovered the body of a young woman floating in the water on September 3, 1896. The coroner found nothing to indicate violence. The cause of death was believed to be suicide, and the unidentified body was hastily buried. When he heard of the body in the river, Dayton Police Chief Thomas Farrell believed he knew who she was, and he had reason to believe that she had been murdered. Farrell had the woman's body disinterred, and soon after she was identified as 23-year-old Bessie Little by her adopted parents and by her dentist, who kept detailed records of his patient's teeth. The coroner still could not determine the cause of death, and the body was reburied. From MurderByGaslight.com The Bessie Little Mystery Her parents said they did not report Bessie missing because she had left home several weeks earlier to look for work. She was living in a Dayton boarding house run by Mrs. Freese. The story was the Littles had kicked Bessie out of their house when they learned she had been intimate with her boyfriend, 20-year-old Albert France. They told her not to return unless he agreed to marry her. Mrs. Freese verified that Bessie had been staying at her boarding house and that Albert France had been paying her weekly rent. She said that the last time she saw Bessie was on August 27th when Bessie told her she was going for a buggy ride with France. The following day, France came to the house asking for Bessie and Mrs. Freese told him she never came home from the buggy ride. France said she was mistaken about the buggy ride. He had not seen Bessie the night before. He then paid her Bessie's next week's rent in advance. Bessie Little and Albert France were from different economic backgrounds. As a baby, Bessie had been an orphan at the Miami County Children's Home. Peter Little and his wife adopted her when she was two years old. But the Littles were poor, and soon as she was old enough, they put Bessie to work as a domestic servant. Albert France worked as a stenographer for the Matthias Planing Mill Company. He came from a wealthy family. The youngest of five children, he was spoiled by his parents and siblings. Those who knew France well described him as cruel and cunning, but Bessie was infatuated by him. Shortly before her death, Bessie consulted a physician and some believed that she had been pregnant or had even undergone an abortion. In any case, her parents knew enough about her relations with France to bar her from the house until she either broke him off or married him. Among her belongings, police found an unmailed letter addressed to the father of Albert France, begging him to force a marriage. It had been easy for France to seduce Bessie, but he had no intention of marrying her. France maintained that he had not been with Bessie on the night of her disappearance, but Chief Farrell did not believe him and kept France in custody pending the outcome of the coroner's investigation. Farrell had been able to identify the body because he knew Bessie Little had been thrown in the river even before the body was found. France, with a relative, had gone to see Reverend Teeter for advice, telling him that Bessie had killed herself and he had thrown her body into the river. He wanted to know how the law would view the situation, so Reverend Teeter referred him to Judge J.W. Kreitzer. They attempted to keep the matter secret, but the story leaked out. Judge Kreitzer, acting as France legal counsel, would not confirm or deny the story, but Chief Farrell heard it, and when the body was discovered in the Miami River, Farrell knew who it was. Farrell was convinced that Albert France murdered Bessie Little, but France denied seeing Bessie that night, and there was no evidence to directly link him to her death. Then, on September 5th, Someone found a freshly dried pool of blood, along with two decorative combs identified as belonging to Bessie, on the Stillwater Bridge about a half a mile from the spot where the body was found. There were also buggy tire tracks believed to be connected to the blood. 
This was enough to justify digging up the body once more. This time, the coroner's close examination discovered two gunshot wounds in the right ear, and although the bullets had been shattered by bone, enough lead was recovered for two 32 caliber bullets. The head was then severed from the body and preserved in a jar. The body was reburied. Farrell went to the home of Albert France to try to compare his buggy's tires to the prints left on the bridge, only to find that the France's stable had burned down the day after Bessie was last seen. The horse was killed and the buggy completely destroyed. France now changed his story. He and Bessie had been riding in his buggy and Bessie had been somewhat despondent. When he wasn't looking, she drew a revolver and shot herself. Panicked and afraid the story would not be believed, he threw Bessie's body off the bridge. The obvious flaw in this story was that two shots were fired into her head. The post-mortem examination showed two entry wounds and people living near the bridge recalled hearing cries of murder that night, followed by two gunshots. The revolver was still missing and Chief Farrell was determined to find it. Believing that it had been thrown off the bridge along with the body, he mounted an all-out search of the river below. He obtained twelve powerful magnets weighing three pounds each and using rowboats, dragged them along the bottom of the river, trying to attract the gun. When this failed, he hired Ben Graham, a professional diver who agreed to work for expenses. A.E. Pate, a champion swimmer, also volunteered his services. While the river search proved fruitless, Farrell learned that France had purchased a revolver at Dodd's Gun Shop in Dayton three weeks before Bessie disappeared. He also learned that while courting Bessie, France was also engaged to another woman. With this possible motive, the prosecutors felt they had enough circumstantial evidence to try Albert France for the murder of Bessie Little. More than a hundred witnesses testified at the trial which began on December 14, 1896. France still maintained that Bessie had shot herself. The prosecution brought out Bessie's severed head to show the jurors the two entry wounds. Several physicians testified as to the possibility that Bessie had shot herself twice in the head. The defense's doctors saying it was possible, the prosecution's saying it was not. The defense did not claim that France had been temporarily insane, but just in case, the prosecution had six doctors examine France and testify that he was perfectly sane. Though the evidence was circumstantial, it was enough for the jury to convict Albert France of first-degree murder and he was sentenced to death. On November 19, 1897, after all possible appeals failed, Albert France became the fourth man to die in Ohio's electric chair. He professed his innocence to the end. a story from mentalfloss.com. This story is by Rob Lammel, the Greenbrier Bunker of West Virginia. Nestled in the mountains of southeast West Virginia is White Sulphur Springs, a small town of just over 2,000 people. The main attraction in White Sulphur Springs is the Greenbrier, a 157-year-old hotel for the rich and famous with amenities like five golf courses, a casino, tennis courts, spa treatments, and a secret underground bunker built to provide a safe haven for the legislative branch of the U.S. government in the event of an all-out nuclear war. Built between 1958 and 1962 under a covert project codenamed Greek Island, the two-story, 153-room, 112,554-square-foot reinforced concrete bunker was built into a hillside around 60 feet under the West Virginia wing of the hotel. While it was never used as a secure location for Congress as intended, it was held at the ready until 1992 with 75,000 gallons of water reserves and over 40,000 gallons of diesel fuel to run three generators that could power the facility if the main electrical grid went down. A large air conditioning unit kept the air contaminant free and an incinerator would have been used to dispose of garbage and biological waste. 
As technology advanced in the ensuing years, new equipment was brought in and installed. To keep the bunker at such a ready state, it was staffed 24-7 for 30 years by a team of government employees operating under the guise of TV repairmen for the hotel. In order for the government to continue working after the evacuation of Washington, D.C. in the event of nuclear war, the bunker was built with a professional studio for radio and television broadcasts, complete with a variety of background photos that gave the impression the speaker was still in Washington. In addition, the House of Representatives and Senate each had separate meeting rooms, as well as a large hall for joint assemblies. These conference rooms were hidden in plain sight. They could be booked by hotel guests for special events, under the belief that the rooms were just part of the West Virginia wing. Little did they know that they were secret wall panels that concealed blast doors as large as 18 tons that led to the rest of the compound. To accommodate the 1,100 people that could potentially live there, bunk beds were installed in 18 dormitories, and a fully stocked cafeteria was prepared to make meals for up to 60 days. If more food was needed, thousands of military-grade meals ready to eat were stocked along the 430-foot tunnel that led into the facility from the main entrance. Complete medical facilities were on site, including an operating room, ICU, and an infirmary that could hold 14 people, all manned by a staff of 35. Every one of the four entrances to the bunker was protected by a set of blast doors, including the largest that was 12 feet by 15 feet of steel and concrete and weighed 28 tons. However, the door was so well balanced on its 1.5 ton hinges that it could be opened and closed by a single person. Although the bunker remained secret for 30 years, there were whispers of its existence around White Sulphur Springs and among the staff at the hotel. Contractors involved in the construction were suspicious of the 50,000 tons of concrete that were poured at the site, and workers remember the blast doors being installed, but no one could ever confirm just what they were building. Many told their story, but it wasn't until May 1992 when reporter Ted Gupp of the Washington Post wrote about the Greenbrier Bunker that these stories were given legitimacy. Shortly after Gupp's story was published, the U.S. government verified the existence of the bunker, then promptly shut it down. By July 1995, the facility had been turned over to the hotel, which now offers daily tours of the bunker for its guests. In addition to his many other achievements, Mark Twain also accurately predicted his own death. Halley's Comet soared overhead when he was born in 1835, and he always believed his life would end when the comet came back. Twain died in 1910 as the comet reappeared after its allotted 75-year absence. A pretty neat trick, one might think, but many people have predicted their own demise with uncanny accuracy. Some have even been Kentuckians. From the book, The Kentucky Book of the Dead, by Kevin McQueen, they predicted their own deaths. In March 1880, Mr. Tillman Pierce died at his home on Meeting Creek, Hardin County, after a long illness. Much to his family's surprise and discomfiture, Pierce disrupted his own funeral by suddenly sitting up in his casket and announcing that he had visited heaven and hell while temporarily dead. After describing these places, specifically their climates, he said he would die again in one day and then would rise again three days afterward. After his final curtain call, he said he would die and stay dead. Pierce did die at the end of the day, but whether he revived three days later, no one can say. Let's hope he did not, for his spooked family quickly had him buried fathoms deep. If he did rise again from the dead, an unpleasant surprise awaited him. A case reminiscent of Tillman Pierce's occurred when Rhonda Ritchie of Hinman, Knott County, died in September 1896, or at least she put on a good show. After she was dressed in her burial clothes and coffined, Dr. J.T. Walker noticed signs of life and managed to revive her. 
The fact that she had just missed becoming a victim of premature burial seemed not to trouble her. To the contrary, she happily told everyone that she had been to heaven. She further astonished friends and family by telling them that she would die for good in a month. Mrs. Ritchie spent that month in continuous prayer. True to her word, she passed away on October 16th. The story of John Waldberger is a strange mixture of cold feet, unkept promises, and a woman's preternatural persistence. In 1881, while immigrating to America on a steamer, Waldberger met a woman named Elizabeth Gander. They must have hit it off pretty well, since Waldberger promised en route that he would marry her. But when the ship docked, they went their separate ways. Elizabeth to Louisville and John to West Virginia, where he became a carpenter. In 1888, he joined the Swiss colony in Laurel County, Kentucky. In 1891, he lit out for the Indian Territory. All this time, he was still engaged to Elizabeth Gander and corresponded with her, but they remained unmarried, as he felt he had not sufficient income. At last, Miss Gander grew tired of the arrangement, and after 11 years of being engaged, she told Waldberger he must come to Louisville and marry her, no matter how impoverished he might be. The blessed event took place on Saturday, March 12, 1892, at Gander's Shelby Street home. While the guests congratulated Waldberger at the reception, the groom expressed a wish that he would die in a week. Eight days later, he was dead at age 43 of what the doctors called softening of the brain, that is, a stroke. The minister who had performed the wedding ceremony also officiated the funeral. Andrew Vaughn, a farmer, Mexican War veteran, and original California 49er, lived in Harrodsburg, Mercer County, where he was a much-beloved local character. He alarmed friends by accurately predicting weeks in advance that he would answer death's bugle call on August 27, 1895. In December 1896, Isaac Bullen's sister died in Rockcastle County. He remarked, One week from today, I will be buried. He was right. Bullen obviously was a fellow who liked to be prepared, for he had had his casket and burial clothes made to order 25 years before. Thomas Marshall, originally from Louisville, was at work in a St. Louis pool room on April 30, 1897, and was discussing a Memphis horse race with his friends. Marshall was especially excited by a contestant named Algol, stating, I'd stake my life on that horse. He even went so far as to place a bet that Algol would finish first. An hour later, the news came over the wire that the horse had lost. Marshall fell unconscious at his desk and died later that night. I suppose it means he did not have to pay his wager. George W. Nall attended a barbecue at Clay, Webster County, on July 31, 1898. While walking to a lemonade stand with Thomas Page, the county jailer, Nall remarked, I will be a dead man in less than 20 minutes. Thus saying, he collapsed and was dead within a half hour. Nall's dramatic demise might be explained by the fact that he had had a long history of heart trouble. On New Year's Day, 1900, George Vetter of Ludlow, Kenton County, boldly stated that he would not live to see 1901. Five days later, he was dead, seemingly of natural causes. Mrs. W.A. Roberts, a young wife in Bardwell, Carlisle County, claimed to have had a psychic dream that foretold that some great man would be shot and that in one week from the time he died, she would die. But she didn't tell any of her friends about the dream until Kentucky's Governor Goble was shot on January 30, 1900. Naturally, her skeptical pals scoffed, believing that she had made up the dream after the fact. But they ceased laughing when Mrs. Roberts became ill a few days after Goble was shot. Goble died on February 3rd, and Mrs. Roberts died of blood poisoning on February 10th, precisely a week after the governor's demise. She left behind a husband and two children. In 1903, Letitia Barrett died of gastritis at her home in Warfield, Martin County. Evidently, she had had a feeling for some time that her death was impending. Months before, while still in good health, she had secretly made and hidden her burial clothes. She also wrote a note and hid it in her pillow. 
As she lay dying, she told her friends and her husband, attorney J.D. Barrett, about the location of the note and asked them not to read it until she had passed away. After that sad event occurred on January 13th, they opened the letter and read these instructions from the grave. I want Lily Barrett and Mrs. Helen L. Barrett to dress me. You will find two skirts, a gown, an undershirt, and a pair of white hose in the middle bureau drawer. I do not want any shoes or slippers on my feet. Louisvillian Henry Creamer took ill on March 19, 1903. He remarked that it would be strange if he died on March 25th, the 50-year anniversary of the day he lost his right arm in a hunting accident. On March 25th, the death angel proved to have a sense of historical irony. Lula Carter Fowler of Louisville was so certain her death was imminent that on the night of Saturday, June 24, 1905, she confided her desired funerary arrangements to a neighbor, Mrs. Mildred Beichner. Mrs. Fowler came down with peritonitis the next morning after attending church. She answered the summons in her West Walnut Street home on the night of June 25th after an illness of only 10 hours. A third Louisvillian, Barbara William Beisch, came down with pulmonary tuberculosis in March 1906. Since the disease was almost always fatal, it is not surprising that Beisch had a premonition that the reaper was beckoning, even though he was only 34 years old. What is surprising, and more than a little eerie, is the precision with which he predicted the moment of his demise. On the night of Sunday, May 6, 1906, he told his wife that he would be dead by 8 p.m. on the coming Wednesday. He died at 8 p.m. on Wednesday, May 9th. On February 28, 1913, Dr. John Franklin Bull Lillard of Mercer County stated with confidence that he would die on the 4th of July. He did exactly that on the predicted day at the age of 61, only a half hour before midnight. The most distinguished Kentuckian to ever amaze others by revealing his own death date was former Governor Luke P. Blackburn. On September 9, 1887, as he lay on his deathbed, Blackburn overheard a doctor say that he could not live another hour. Blackburn announced, I will only be with you five days, tell all my relatives and friends. An account in the Atlanta Constitution has the dying man making an even more precise prediction. I will die on September 14th at 2.30 p.m. Blackburn did exactly that. Perhaps Blackburn, himself a physician, had been able to predict his demise with such accuracy by observing his own symptoms. Listeners, I don't try to do many topical stories on the show because I don't really think there's any reason to orient the podcast in time at all, but this is a topical story that I just thought was too good to pass up. It's called Pearl Harbor Veteran Recalls Coming Eye to Eye with a Japanese Bomber. And this is from History.com. This story is by Amanda Onion. Paul Kennedy was expecting to sleep in on the morning of December 7th, 1941. He had been on deck duty on board the USS Sacramento at Pearl Harbor until 4 a.m., then grabbed coffee with a buddy and hadn't gone to bed until 5.30 a.m. So when alarms sounded at around 8 a.m., as a swarm of Japanese warplanes began a ferocious assault on the U.S. naval base, Kennedy thought it was a drill and tried to tune it out. I put the pillow over my ear, he told History in a 2016 interview. My buddy saw that I wasn't responding, so he pulled the covers off and said in so many words, get up and go, we're under attack. Grab your gas mask and helmet, which I did. I didn't even put on any pants. Soon, a chilling encounter with one of the Japanese pilots who was dropping torpedoes on the U.S. fleet that morning would become seared in Kennedy's memory. The Japanese attack at Pearl Harbor not only took then-21-year-old Kennedy by surprise, it shocked the nation. The attacks, which killed 2,400 Americans and wounded 1,200, struck a devastating blow against the U.S. Pacific Fleet. Five U.S. battleships, three destroyers, and seven other ships were taken out, and more than 200 aircraft were lost in the rain of Japanese bombs and gunfire. 
the assault pulled the United States into a war that it had, until then, resisted joining. The following day, President Franklin D. Roosevelt called December 7, 1941, a date which will live on in infamy, and Congress declared war on Japan. For Kennedy, who described feeling so much anger as the day unfolded, the start of the attack was particularly ominous. After being roused by his shipmate, Kennedy, still in his underwear, ran up a ladder to the ship's deck. As soon as he emerged, he was overwhelmed by an approaching Japanese fighter plane. Right above me, about 20 feet above my head, was a torpedo plane with a big torpedo, Kennedy recalled. And that's not a way to wake up. As the plane approached, Kennedy said he was close enough to see right into the cockpit. He was going low and slow because he was getting ready to drop that torpedo as soon as he cleared our ship, Kennedy said. And he had his canopy back and was looking down at me, and I was looking up at him. I guess I looked pretty funny in my shorts and my skivvies. Kennedy said he later learned the pilot was Mitsuo Fuchida, a captain in the Imperial Japanese Navy Air Service who was credited with leading the first wave of attacks at Pearl Harbor. The torpedo Kennedy saw Fuchido drop would detonate on the USS Oklahoma, which, within 20 minutes, was overturned on its side. Kennedy remembered seeing some men blown into the air like rag dolls and others scrambling for their lives, climbing over the hull of the ship. It was a sad, sad sight. In the end, 429 crewmen aboard the Oklahoma were killed. Kennedy was horrified by the sight, but had no time to dwell on the tragedy. He suited up and ran to his station on a flying bridge to hoist flags as a signalman. Then Kennedy experienced his own brush with death as he saw a Japanese fighter plane drop a bomb on the nearby USS Pennsylvania and then bank toward his own ship. He starts strafing, Kennedy recalled. I didn't have any protection and I feared this is it. I've had it. There were bullets landing all around me. I could hear them hitting the deck. I heard him hitting and hitting, making chips on the deck, but he missed. Kennedy survived that day and went on to serve in the war through July 1945 on two other ships, including a submarine chaser and the USS Poole, a destroyer. While serving on the Poole, Kennedy earned a Purple Heart after being hit by machine gun fire from a German submarine. But for Kennedy, death never felt as close as it had on December 7, 1941, when he dodged bullets and saw dozens of bodies of his fellow sailors in their white uniforms floating face down in Pearl Harbor's oil-soaked waters. The devastating Japanese attack took the nation by surprise, but it failed to deliver the decisive blow Japan had hoped for against the U.S. Pacific Fleet. No U.S. aircraft carriers were at Pearl Harbor on the day of the attack, and the Japanese assault failed to take out U.S. ammunition sites. And, as for morale, Kennedy said that while he and his fellow seamen were caught off guard, they quickly settled in for a fight. There was nobody on the Sacramento who was out of control, crying for their mother or crying at all, Kennedy said, adding that everyone did what they were trained to do. I was real proud of my ship. Paul Ivan Kennedy died on December 2nd, 2017. He was 96 years old. Edgar Allan Poe enjoyed hoaxes. He authored six of them himself, and he also spent time trying to debunk the hoaxes of others, such as the hoax of Melzell's chess player. But was Poe responsible for only six hoaxes? For over a century, a story has circulated claiming that Poe, as a young man, perpetrated a seventh, lesser-known hoax. It is said to have been an April Fool's Day hoax that he pulled off while living in Baltimore in his early 20s. And this story is from the hoaxes.org website. Edgar Allan Poe's apocryphal April Fool hoax. The story of the hoax. The story goes that in late March around 1831, or perhaps 1829, Poe placed a notice in a local Baltimore paper 
possibly William Gwynn's Baltimore Gazette and Daily Advertiser, announcing that on the morning of April 1st, a man would leap off the top of the recently built Phoenix Shot Tower and, by means of his newly invented flying machine, fly to the Lazaretto Point Lighthouse, a distance of two and a half miles. At the time, the Shot Tower was the tallest structure in the United States, standing 234 feet high. It was used to manufacture gunshot by dropping molten lead from the top. The lead fell through perforated pans into water at the bottom, forming into perfect spheres as it fell. Naturally, the idea of a man flying from the top of the tower generated enormous excitement, so a large crowd gathered to see the spectacle. However, no aeronaut ever appeared, causing the crowd to grow upset and unruly until they realized what day it was and dispersed. Poe reportedly published a card of regret in that afternoon's paper, explaining that the aeronaut had been unable to keep his engagement because one of his wings had gotten wet. Where does the story come from? The earliest printed report of this story that I've been able to find is in Reverend William J. Scott's Lectures and Essays, published in 1889. The details of the story, as Scott told it, are close to those I give above, except that Scott didn't mention flying to the lighthouse. The story next shows up in American Authors, A Handbook of American Literature, 1902, by Mildred Rutherford, who quotes directly from Scott. Finally, Poe biographer Mary E. Phillips described the hoax in her 1926 book, Edgar Allan Poe, The Man. In Phillips, we find the detail about the man flying from the shot tower to the lighthouse. Meanwhile, the story was evidently circulating as legend in Baltimore itself. In 1995, an exhibit at the shot tower featured a mannequin of Poe which spoke to visitors, telling them about the April Fool hoax. Is the story true? There's one piece of evidence that might connect Poe to the hoax. On May 6, 1831, he wrote to William Gwynn, owner of the Baltimore Gazette, asking for a job. His letter read, Dear Sir, I am almost ashamed to ask any favor at your hands after my foolish conduct upon a former occasion, but I trust your good nature. I am very anxious to remain and settle in Baltimore, as Mr. Allen has married again, and I no longer look upon Richmond as my place of residence. This wish of mine has also met with his approbation. I wish to request your influence in obtaining some situation or employment in this city. Salary would be a minor consideration, but I do not wish to be idle. Perhaps, since I understand Nielsen has left you, you might be so kind as to employ me in your office in some capacity. If so, I will use every exertion to deserve your confidence. Very respectfully, Edgar A. Poe. When Poe mentions his foolish conduct upon a former occasion, could he be referring to the April Fool hoax? Maybe. But then again, probably not, because it's not clear when Poe could possibly have pulled off the hoax. The shot tower was built over a period of six months in 1828. So if Poe was apologizing for the hoax in May 1831, this means that the hoax must have been pulled off in either 1829, 1830, or 1831. However, on April 1st, 1829, Poe was in Virginia waiting to be discharged from the army. He received his discharge on April 15th, so he couldn't have perpetrated an April Fool hoax in Baltimore that year. On April 1st, 1830, Poe was at the Richmond home of his foster father, John Allen, trying to arrange admittance into West Point. He was admitted several months later. Only in 1831 was Poe actually in Baltimore on April 1st. He had arrived there earlier that year and was living with his aunt, Maria Clem. But if Poe perpetrated the hoax in April 1831, it seems odd that he would write to Gwen only a month later, seeking a job. The tone of the letter makes it sound like the foolish conduct had occurred much further in the past. Another problem is that in April 1831, Lazaretto Point Lighthouse hadn't been built yet. Construction of it only commenced later that same year. But this is a minor problem, since it's reasonable to assume that the lighthouse could have been added to the tale later as a literary embellishment. Perhaps Poe didn't publish the hoax notice in Gwen's paper. He could have posted notices around town instead in which case his letter to Gwyn would be a red herring. In 
or perhaps the hoax occurred after 1831. Poe did remain in Baltimore until 1835. These are possibilities, but in either case, there's a larger problem, which is that there are no printed references to the hoax at all until 1889, almost 60 years after it supposedly happened. In 2002, Alan Gephardt, executive director of Carroll Museums, the organization that maintains the tower as a museum, combed through old Baltimore newspapers trying to find any reference to Poe's April Fool hoax, and he found nothing. As reported in this October 22, 2002 Baltimore Sun article, if Gephardt ever published an account of his research, I'm not aware of it, the shot tower's history has been dusted off thanks to the sleuthing of Gephardt, 46, who scoured old newspapers. Another tale is local urban legend, Gephardt has concluded. Poet Edgar Allan Poe, it was said, once claimed someone would fly off the tower and land safely. As best Gephardt can tell, Poe never said it, and nobody was dumb enough to try the stunt. So we have no evidence, beyond hearsay from decades later, that this hoax happened at all. What inspired the legend? If the hoax is merely an urban legend, then what might have inspired it? There are several possibilities. First, the hoax could have occurred at some point without any involvement by Poe, but no record of it remains in papers from that period. This is quite possible since newspaper holdings from that period tend to be a bit hit and miss, and a prank might not have been deemed newsworthy anyway. The hoax might then have been later attributed to Poe as he was Baltimore's most famous literary hoaxer. Second, the tale bears some similarity to a flying machine hoax that happened in Pittsburgh in 1846, so perhaps the Pittsburgh hoax inspired the Baltimore legend. The Pittsburgh hoax involved a notice that appeared in the Pittsburgh Dispatch announcing that the inventor of a pair of wings would give a demonstration of his device by leaping from the top of the Holland Street Bridge, flying over the Allegheny River, and then returning to the place from which he had started. A large crowd gathered, and at the appointed hour a mysterious man appeared, walked to the center of the bridge, and with a flourish released a goose from a cloth bag, the goose flew honking up into the air. Perhaps as the story of the Pittsburgh hoax was retold over time, details got mixed up. The setting could have been transferred to Baltimore's shot tower, a more dramatic structure to leap off of. The goose omitted, and Poe added. It could have happened. However, I think that the first possibility, that such a hoax really did occur in Baltimore, more likely. Tall structures often served as the focus for April Fool's Day pranks, as have landmarks of all sizes. For instance, on April 1, 1858, a notice ran in Chicago papers claiming that at 1 o'clock, a famous gymnast would ascend the steeple of St. Paul's Church from the outside and stand upright on the summit, returning the same way to the ground, all to be accomplished in the space of 20 minutes. As the tallest structure in America, the Phoenix Shot Tower would have been an obvious setting for an April Fool's Day prank. Actually, it would be kind of surprising if there wasn't an April Fool's hoax associated with it. But the fact is that we don't have any primary source evidence to prove that such a hoax occurred. So until such evidence surfaces, the April 1st flight from the Shot Tower has to remain in the category of legend. A Russian man has become so attached to a wolf that he adopted as a small pup that when he had to leave his old home and move into an apartment in the big city of Volgograd, he took the wolf with him. From the website, oddityscentral.com, a story by Spooky. Russian man shares one-room apartment with full-grown pet wolf. Ivan L. and his daughter have been sharing their home with Gray, a full-grown wild wolf, for several years now. It was easier when they lived in Astrakhan, but things got considerably more complicated when they had to move into a one-room apartment on the first floor of a nine-story building in Volgograd. Still, despite facing many challenges, they managed to make it work, and Ivan says he couldn't imagine his life without his beloved pet. 
Ivan told Russian newspaper The Pravda that he met his unusual pet a few years ago when he was invited to accompany a group of hunters on a hunting trip at Astrakhan. At one point, the hunters followed their dogs deeper into the forest, and he was left by himself. It was then that two cute wolf pups came out of some bushes in front of him. He recalls standing there in a daze, unsure how to react, but luckily one of the animals took the initiative and approached him. When it got really close and Ivan crouched to greet it, the small pup started licking his hand. Ivan claims that he was familiar with animal communication and he knew that the two wolf pups were asking for help. The man took both pups back with him to Astrakhan, but he couldn't keep both of them in his apartment, so he gave one of them to some friends in the countryside and kept the one who had licked his hand. Unfortunately, Gray's brother couldn't adjust to a domestic lifestyle. He stole chickens, harassed cattle, and when his owner's patience finally wore out, he got rid of it. Ivan didn't say whether that meant the wolf was simply chased away or put down. Gray, on the other hand, seemed to have no problem adjusting to life among humans or to the confines of an apartment. Ivan and his wolf slept in the same bed, went out for walks in the city, and everything was fine. Then, the Russian man got a job in the city of Volgograd, and the family moved into a small one-room apartment there. It was barely large enough for Ivan and his daughter, let alone a full-grown wolf, but leaving their pet behind was never an option. To make life easier for Gray, Ivan turned the balcony of their first-floor apartment into a graded enclosure for the wolf, where he could get fresh air and see what's going on outside. It was not ideal, and some of the neighbors weren't too happy about having to walk past a real wolf, but at least they were together. He also walks him on a leash around the neighborhood, and although most dogs are nervous around him, Gray isn't aggressive towards them. In fact, he shares the apartment with two dogs that Ivan brought with him from Astrakhan. Ivan recalls Gray's incredible reaction when he first saw the two dogs on his territory. He says that the wolf looked at them, then at his master, and understood everything. They've been getting along wonderfully ever since. As for his behavior around humans, Ivan says that Gray seems to dislike being around other men, but is very calm when he meets women and children. Disgruntled neighbors sent complaints to various local authorities, and Ivan has lost count of the many times he was visited by police officers regarding his pet wolf, but he refused to part with Gray. Ivan L. told Viprata that he appealed to animal behavior experts and even dog handlers to study Gray and his remarkable adjustment to life among humans, but so far, no one has shown any interest. His hope now is his daughter, who recently quit Pedagogical University to focus on canine studies at a veterinary college. Animal behavior experts advise against keeping wolves as pets, as they can be unpredictable even when raised as pups. Unlike dogs, wolves have lived as wild animals for around 10,000 years, so they are much more likely to give in to their predatory and territorial instincts despite being raised as domestic from a very young age. But if Ivan's words are to be believed, Gray does sound like an exception. Jefferson Davis was attending a Sunday church service in the capital of the Confederacy, Richmond, Virginia, when he heard the news. Union General Ulysses S. Grant had broken General Robert E. Lee's defenses in Petersburg, less than 25 miles from Richmond. By nightfall, the evacuation of Richmond needed to be completed. At approximately midnight, Confederate cabinet members, officials, their families, and the entire treasury the mythical Confederate gold, were finally making their way south to Danville, Virginia, on the only railroad still open. This was April 2, 1865. One week later, on April 9th, General Grant and General Lee met at the Appomattox Courthouse to sign the Confederacy's official surrender. America's Civil War was finally over. From the website, todayifoundout.com Whatever happened to Confederate President Jefferson Davis? 
And this story is by Matt Blitz. Even with the surrender signed and the Civil War effectively over, the President of the Confederacy, Jefferson Davis, didn't want to admit defeat. He set up a temporary government in Danville with his trusted advisors, John H. Reagan, Judah P. Benjamin, John Breckinridge, and Burton Harrison among them, to try to figure out a way to reinforce their troops and push the fighting further west. Privately, he began to make plans to flee abroad to a sympathetic Britain or France, thinking that he could form a government in exile. It was not to be. On April 15th, President Lincoln was assassinated. Now President Andrew Johnson was under the false assumption that Davis and his cohorts had been directly involved in the murder of the president. Union troops, with the U.S. War Department's $100,000 bounty, about $1.6 million today, on Davis motivating them, moved toward Danville. Davis and company retreated even further south. They ended up in the town of Washington in Wilkes County, Georgia. On May 4th, Davis held what would be the Confederacy's final cabinet meeting in Washington's State of Georgia Bank Building. Davis authorized payments from the Treasury to his officials and left the rest in care of Captain Micaiah Clark in Washington, where it disappeared under mysterious circumstances. Davis, with his family, had been traveling throughout Georgia when they finally made camp in Irwinville in central Georgia on May 9th. The next morning, they were awoken by gunshots. The 1st Wisconsin and 4th Michigan Cavalries had caught up to them. There are several different interpretations of what happened in those final moments of freedom for Jefferson Davis. While attempting to flee, the northern press wrote that he was wearing his wife's shawl and or petticoat in an attempt to trick his captors. He was called a coward, and later, a popular song of the era was entitled Jeff in Petticoats. Davis's wife insisted, backed up by other historical accounts, that he was simply wearing a shawl because he had become quite ill over the last few days and she had given it to him to keep him warm. Either way, there was no escape. Jefferson Davis officially became a prisoner of the United States government. He was transported to Fort Monroe in Virginia where he was held for two years as a military prisoner. Soldiers watched him 24-7 to ensure he didn't try to escape, that he ate, and didn't try to commit suicide. The country debated how to handle the most famous war criminal from the Civil War. At first, President Johnson wanted to prosecute Davis as a co-conspirator in the assassination of President Lincoln. However, as the trial for the true assassination conspirators wound down in late June 1865, it became clear that Jefferson Davis had no direct connection to the parties. Within a year, Davis was transported to much better quarters and his wife was even allowed to move to Fort Monroe to be near him. According to the Virginia Foundation of Humanities, Davis respected the way he was being treated by the government. He was afforded certain privileges like visitors, exercise, and time with his wife that they didn't necessarily have to give him. On May 13, 1867, he was released into civilian custody on $100,000 bail. The editor of the New York Tribune, Horace Greeley, abolitionist Garrett Smith, and several other prominent Northerners paid that bail. Sam Smith on his reasoning for doing this. My first reason for signing the bond was that Mr. Davis was entitled either to his trial or to his liberty. That the prisoner should have a speedy trial is a general proposition which no one combats. There may have been sufficient reasons for unusual delay in trying Mr. Davis, Hardly, however, for a delay of two years. President Andrew Johnson's own impeachment trial delayed any motions even further. Additionally, there were several issues that the prosecution, the U.S. government, ran into charging Davis with treason. For one, the defendant, Davis, demanded a trial which forced the government to figure out the correct way to prove the unconstitutionality of secession. Needless to say, this was a tough task, and the government asked for more time to gather their argument. Finally, in December 1868, a year and a half after he was released on bail, preliminary motions were held for Davis on the charges of treason against the United States for organizing and arming 
1864 military invasions of Maryland and the District of Columbia. The defense immediately called for a dismissal of the charges. They said that since Davis would already be punished by the 14th Amendment, he could not be further prosecuted under the double jeopardy provision. The 14th Amendment had only been passed in July of that year and dealt with a lot of issues in regards to Reconstruction, but in Section 3, it read, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress, or elector of president and vice president, or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same, or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. The case went to the Supreme Court, but it was never tried. For fear that the Supreme Court would rule in favor of the defense and make the U.S. government look incompetent, President Johnson issued a pardon on Christmas Day, 1868, to all persons who participated in the rebellion. Jefferson Davis was no longer a wanted man. Davis and his family traveled to Europe for a time after his release, no doubt disillusioned with the whole process of prosecution. Upon returning, he took up residence in Tennessee. He kept to himself and didn't comment publicly about Reconstruction. Privately, according to William Cooper's biography on Davis, he thought of African Americans as inferior to white men and resented that the South was ruled by Yankees and Negro. He moved to an estate called Beauvoir near Biloxi, Mississippi. In fact, the state of Mississippi tried to make him a U.S. Senator only for him to be denied due to the previously discussed 14th Amendment. As his quiet retirement continued, he completed a two-volume book in 1881 about his wartime experiences called The Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government. In 1888, his reputation as a Confederate hero restored, he said this to an audience of supporters in Mississippi. Lay aside all rancor, all bitter sectional feeling, and make your places in the ranks of those who will bring about a consummation devoutly to be wished, a reunited country. On December 6, 1889, Jefferson Davis passed away in New Orleans, Louisiana. He was buried there for four years until 1893, when he was relocated to Hollywood Cemetery in Richmond, Virginia. His remains are still there, in the same city where his fall began. That concludes this episode of the Curseland Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.